welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. And I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. Welcome back to our second and final episode on Sid and Nancy, the Romeo and Juliet of punk rock. Today we will explore the tumultuous relationship of these two star-crossed lovers, the implosion of the Sex Pistols, and then get into the mysteries surrounding this infamous case. Who killed Nancy? And was the death of Sid Vicious an overdose or suicide? Well, let's get into it. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, we present to you Sid and Nancy, Part 2, Love Kills. Let's begin. Chapter 1, London, Nancy. Nancy quickly infiltrated the London punk scene. She was taken in by punker and dominatrix Linda Ashby, who not only gave her a place to live, but a job as well in her thriving dominatrix business, spanking and humiliating wealthy British businessmen. Before the American invasion of Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers, there was little, if any, heroin use in the London punk scene. Speed was the drug of choice to get these wild anarchists going, but that soon quickly changed. As original Sex Pistol bassist Glenn Matlock explains. The punk thing at that time weren't clean cut. People were taking speed and drinking a lot and smoking spliffs, but there was never any heroin around in England until the heartbreakers arrived. It's often said that Nancy introduced Sid Vicious to heroin, but it was really Johnny Thunders, who was well known for waving a syringe at the adoring fans who would gather around him after shows and asking if they were mice or men. But of course, Nancy, who adored the Heartbreakers and had followed them across the ocean, was an incredibly bad influence as well, as her and Sid became closer and closer. Johnny Rotten saw right away what a tumultuous problem Nancy and heroin would bring to his best friend and new bandmate, Sid Vicious. As Nancy herself says, Johnny didn't like me because I was a junkie. He tried to keep me in Sid apart for months and months and months. And we had to keep it secret, clandestine, secret, everything. And finally, he gave up. He couldn't deal with it. Sid and Nancy became a bona fide couple, something she was extremely proud of. She finally had her own rock star all to herself, and they moved into Sid's mom's house together. Malcolm McLaren was also disturbed and wary of the influence of this American girl who detached herself to his newest acquisition. But Malcolm was busy trying to get the band a recording contract and into the studio before the Queen's Jubilee determined to have the single God Save the Queen in record shops to coincide with the event. Though loath to work with Richard Branson, whom Malcolm saw as the embodiment of a hippie, in the end he saw no choice and the band signed to Virgin Records. Sid, meanwhile, had contracted hepatitis B from sharing needles 
and ended up in St. Anne's Hospital, where they worked on flushing his liver for a month. He missed both the contract signing and most of the recording sessions that would later become the Sex Pistols' first album, Steve Jones playing both bass and guitar. But Sid did manage to lay down a bass line on the God Save the Queen single. But as always, problems plagued the band. The workers at the factory that pressed the single took offense to the image of Queen Elizabeth with her nose pierced with a safety pin and refused to press it, threatening to strike. Meanwhile, the clock was ticking, the jubilee growing ever closer. But the dispute was finally settled with some greased hands, and on Friday, May 27, 1977, God Save the Queen hit record shops, just in time for the Queen's Silver Jubilee. If the Sex Pistols thought cursing on live television had gotten them in some hot water, they had no idea what was about to befall them by releasing what was perceived to be an insult to Her Majesty and for the celebration of her 25 years on the throne. Of course, the song God Save the Queen wasn't an insult aimed at Queen Elizabeth, but an indictment against the class structure that had left these kids unemployed with no prospects and no future. But that's not the way the public saw it. God Save the Queen was immediately banned by the BBC, basically ensuring no radio play. Members of Parliament called for the band to be hung at London's Traitor's Gate. Record stores and huge retailers like Woolworths refused to sell it. But even with no radio play and banned in nearly all shops, the single still managed to sell over 200,000 copies and became the Billboard number one song in the UK. But the music papers refused to acknowledge it. And when listing the top 10 hits, just left number one blank. And then on June 7th, Jubilee Day, as parades and festivities were underway, Malcolm rented a boat, piled the band and their most hardcore fans on it, and set out on the Thames River so the Sex Pistols could play before the House of Parliament. This wild publicity stunt, like anything Sex Pistols related, ended in utter chaos. The police soon swarmed them, then stormed the boat. Malcolm was arrested, trying desperately to squirm away, as you can see in, in vintage footage of the scene, as was Vivian. Though somehow, through all the madness, the band themselves, including Sid and Nancy, were able to get away. Johnny Rotten calmly walking through the mess of cops, sneering at press cameras. It was utter insanity and met with fierce backlash. As Johnny Rotten said, We declared war in England without meaning to. He also says, From then on out, walking the streets of London alone was impossible. I would be attacked on sight. I felt like a werewolf. He was jumped and knifed, a machete blade jammed into his leg and nearly blinded with a smashed bottle. At the hospital, he was arrested for causing a disturbance. Drummer Paul Cook was jumped as well and bashed in the head in the tube, the London subway. So while band manager Malcolm McLaren dealt with all the fallout, including his own arrest, he sent the band out on a Scandinavian tour, somehow managing to exclude Nancy from going. 
God Save the Queen hadn't been banned in Sweden and was a bona fide hit there, receiving ample radio play and coming in at number eight on the Swedish top ten, and the band was welcomed with open arms. Sid was clean of heroin and at his best. The tour was an amazing success, the Sex Pistols playing some of their best shows ever and were at the top of their game. Sid, who was surprisingly a huge ABBA fan, even got Friday Langstead's autograph. Nancy, meanwhile, had managed to get herself arrested for, of all things, carrying a police baton in her purse for protection. She was set to be deported back to America, but Sid showed up at court in a suit and tie, no less, and declared his intention to marry Nancy and make her a British citizen. So her deportation was canceled. Malcolm managed to get the Sex Pistols back on tour in England with subterfuge, booking them as SPOTS, an acronym for Sex Pistols on Tour Secretly. They also played shows as The Hamsters, a play on Sid's name origin, and Acne Rubble. (laughs) Acne Rubble, that's a good one. Sid was coming into his own, becoming the iconic Sid Vicious. But his mother, Anne, lamented the change, saying, I don't think Malcolm ever understood that he destroyed Simon. He took my son and molded him into this icon, which was very much of his own making. I saw him a couple of times around that time, and although he still looked and sounded like me, Simon, he had changed, and not for the better. He used to have such a cheeky smile and a mischievous glint in his eyes. But by Christmas 1977, the boyish smile had been replaced by a snarl, and the glint had all but disappeared. I've often wondered what would have happened if he'd been able to bail out at that point, although I suppose none of it was meant to be. And this iconic image was, of course, one of drugs and hedonism. And Nancy was there to supply both. Chapter 2. Never Mind the Bollocks On Friday, the 28th of October, 1977, the Sex Pistols' first and only studio album was released. Never Mind the Bollocks. Advanced orders reached 120,000, catapulting it to number one in the charts and granting it a gold record certification, something that hadn't been seen since the Beatles. But of course... Controversy and problems soon followed. Record stores were wary of the band's infamy, and the term bollocks was seen by many to be obscene. So the record was hidden from view, promotional posters thrown in the trash. Sure enough, a magistrate declared the word bollocks as obscene and ordered every album to be destroyed. But Virgin Records Branson, unlike the uptight establishment EMI and AM, refused to give in to bogus moral outrage. He went to court and hired James Kingley, who was not only a prestigious professor of English studies at Nottingham University, but an Anglican vicar as well. Kingley wore a clerical collar when he arrived in court and declared bollocks to be a fine, upstanding Anglo-Saxon word that meant nonsense, which had appeared in writing dating all the way back to the year 1000. The Sex Pistols not only changed fashion, music, and modern culture, they legalized and ingrained a word into the formal English lexicon. Nothing short of a Shakespearean accomplishment. Oh, 
and Sid and Nancy are head over heels in love at this point, proclaiming their devotion and undying love, the spiky-haired London punk and his bleached blonde rocker junkie New York scene girlfriend. No matter what you think of either one of them, you have to admit, they do look good together, like jigsaw puzzle pieces, a punk yin and yang. Him with his jet black hair, tall and skinny, with a rowdy masculine swagger. She with platinum locks, short and squat, playing her femininity to the hilt with fishnets and copious makeup and exposed cleavage. For good or bad, they're iconic as hell. Sid wrote Nancy this poem of sorts. What makes Nancy so great? By Sidney. One, beautiful. Two, sexy. Three, beautiful figure. Four, great sense of humor. Five, makes extremely interesting conversation. Six, witty. Seven, has beautiful eyes. Eight, has fab tasting clothes. Nine, has the most beautiful wet pussy in the world. Ten, even has sexy feet. 11, is extremely smart. And 12, a great hustler. (laughs) (laughs) That's something. (laughs) The two lovebirds got their own place together in London's hip Maida Vale neighborhood at number three, Pindock Muse. They put a jukebox in, Sid hung his poster collection, the flyers and promotional posters for all the punk rock shows he'd been to over the years a scene he very much created, perfecting the look and creating an actual type of dance that had spread like wildfire. All the kids pogoed now. The fans had also started spitting at each other and the band, something I find absolutely disgusting and luckily never caught on in America. Joe Strummer from The Clash ended up getting hepatitis as someone's lucky gob ended up landing right in his mouth. That is disgusting. Yes, it is. Oh, so Sid got a motorcycle. He'd park inside. They'd cook for friends and have get-togethers for dinner. Very homey. But they were both incredibly emotionally unstable, especially Nancy, and would get into violent, heated arguments. And of course, there were the drugs. Nancy thought being a junkie was chic and cool, part of the whole punk mythos, something she'd been taught by Johnny Thunders and Dee Dee Ramone to believe. Dee Dee and Johnny Thunders even wrote songs about the junkie lifestyle, like Chinese Rocks, and Johnny Thunders even considered naming his new band The Junkies. Nice name. But Malcolm McLaren, he was not amused by the chic and casual use of heroin. He grew so concerned, in fact, that he decided to literally kidnap Nancy and send her back to New York. It was a wild plot. He made Sid a dentist appointment, sure to have the dentist administer lots of gas to keep him out for hours, stuck in a dental chair. At the same time, he sent his secretary, Sophia Richmond, to ask Nancy to go shopping for furniture and supplies for Nancy and Sid's new place. In the Paddington shopping district, as Nancy shopped for kitchen supplies, Malcolm and tour manager Boogie and roadie Rodent arrived on the scene, dressed in suits like gangsters, ready to manhandle her into a taxi and hustle her to the airport. But Nancy went hysterical 
broke free, bellowing that she was being kidnapped, and tore off down the street, screaming her head off. Sid's mom, Anne, says that Malcolm's plan to kidnap Nancy, quote, achieved only two things. Firstly, it brought Simon and Nancy even closer. And secondly, Simon's resentment of Malcolm grew so intense that he never shook it off, end quote. Sid publicly stated that if Malcolm ever tried anything like that again, he would kill him. The Sex Pistols did a tour through Holland, the first show of which in Rotterdam is often cited as the best live performance they ever played. Sid tearing it up. But by the end of the tour, Sid was an utter mess, unable to score any heroin and shivering and shaking and vomiting with withdrawals. At one point, laying in the gutter, in the rain, begging for a Valium. For Christmas 1977, the Sex Pistols played a charity benefit for the children of striking firemen. They hosted a huge dinner and gave away presents to the children, Sid pretending to fight them for the gifts, then played an afternoon show for the children, all proceeds going to the striking firemen. During the show, the children pelted the band with whipped cream and jelly joyfully dancing about. There's footage of this, and if you haven't seen it, you really, really should, because it's the cutest damn thing you've ever seen. These supposedly dangerous and evil punk rockers singing for children as the kids smear whipped cream all over them, absolutely delighted. It's just utterly adorable. After the show, Sid and Nancy tried to make a porno in the dressing room, atop a Never Mind the Bollocks poster but weren't able to pull it off because they were too high on heroin, having just fixed. Chapter 3. Cowboys and Punks. The Sex Pistols Go to America. Back in America, while punk may have been the big thing in the inner city, it was definitely not catching on with mass popular culture, like in England. In the States, the biggest sellers were the Bee Gees, with the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, and Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. When Nevermind the Bollocks hit, it only managed to reach number 108. But Malcolm declared the time was right to send the band over the pond and to the States. Instead of having the band tour through cities where they were immensely popular, like New York and Los Angeles, Malcolm instead decided to send them through the Deep South hoping to cause the controversy and chaos that had brought them such infamy in England. It's a crazy move, dangerous, and in my opinion, quite harebrained. But off they went. Malcolm was able to accomplish two amazing feats. First, he was able to somehow keep Nancy in London and not allow her to escort Sid. Secondly, there was the fact that he was able to get this gang of criminals into the States at all. They had a long list of convictions, from drugs, theft, to Sid's assault on a police officer. But after Warner Brothers put up a $1 million security bond, Malcolm managed to get the Sex Pistols through customs. The first show was in Atlanta, Georgia, at the Longhorn Ballroom on January 5th, 1978. It went as well as you'd expect. Steve Cook crooned to the crowd. Okay, all you cowboys. A hail of trash erupted towards the stage, including pig noses. Johnny Rotten sneered at them, shouting, This one's called Anarchy in the... 
and Sid Vicious interrupted, screaming, USA! As the opening chords hit and the drums smashed to life, a full can of beer came whipping from the crowd and smashed Sid right in his nose, which exploded in a torrent of blood as Johnny howled that he was an antichrist. The American tour was the stuff of legend and so full of infamous incidents, you could really make an entire podcast series about it. But we're going to have to just skim over it. We know what you want. The murder. This is murder coaster after all. Let's just say the tour didn't go well. Playing places like Randy's Rodeo in Texas. Sid was strung out. Band constantly squabbling. And at the last show at the Winterland in San Francisco, they basically broke up on stage and never played together again. Sid managed to overdose twice. Once in San Francisco and once on the flight back to England the second time waking up in the hospital. Back in London and in Nancy's waiting arms again, Sid holed up in their little flat with his true love and a syringe and a spoon. Sid said about the breakup of the Sex Pistols, Sometimes it upsets me so much that I cry about it. That band stood for so, so much. So much freedom of youth and speech. It was very revolutionary. Chapter 4. My Way. The Sex Pistols had literally imploded, each member claiming they had left the group, but for Malcolm McLaren, the dream was still alive, this time with a film about the band entitled The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. While Johnny would have nothing to do with him, he did convince Steve Jones and Sid, with Nancy in tow, to come to Paris and record some music and shoot some footage. It was then that Sid recorded his iconic version of Frank Sinatra's My Way and filmed the legendary scene of him shooting royalty and his own mother in a French opera house. While the resulting song and video are legendary and amazing, songwriter Paul Anka penned the song for Sinatra, even exclaiming how wonderful it was. Sid was hard to work with, causing trouble and often too inebriated to sing or act. Nancy, now calling herself Sid's manager, then demanded Malcolm sign an agreement, relinquishing all of Sid's rights. And when Malcolm refused and said Sid was, quote, just another fucked up junkie with no future, end quote, the irate Sid, clothed in nothing but underwear and biker boots, vented all his pent-up rage and proceeded to beat the living shit out of Malcolm. Nancy, now working in capacity as Sid's manager, devised a plan where they'd go to New York City and, using all of her old connections, turn Sid into a superstar that would far eclipse the rest of the Sex Pistols. The only problem was they had no money. Any income that came in immediately went to their heroin habit. So Nancy came up with the idea of having a fundraising concert to get them to New York. And who should they recruit for the effort? None other than former Sex Pistol bassist Glenn Matlock, whom Sid had infamously replaced. Glenn was game. The press portrayed them as fierce enemies, and Sid would egg it on by calling him a wanker and a cunt. But the truth is, though they weren't necessarily friends, they were by no means enemies. As you may remember, Glenn had given the fledgling Sid Vicious bass lessons, and they often saw each other at the neighborhood pub where they all hung out. 
the Warrington. Rat Scabies, I love that name, <laughs> from the Damned, was recruited as drummer, and Glenn's friend Steve knew on guitar. They booked a rehearsal space. Sid showed up hours late, limping in. When they asked why he was limping, he explained the veins in his arms had all collapsed from heroin use, and he'd been forced to shoot up in his foot. Though there are no recordings of the actual concert Sid played at the Electric Circus, many have said it was amazing. Debbie Harry was there, as was Joan Jett. The head of Warner Brothers was also there, and later told Glenn Matlock they were better than the Sex Pistols, and he'd thought of offering them a recording contract, but declined because he thought Sid wasn't long for this world and would soon be dead. Unfortunately, he was very right. With the success of the Benefit concert, Sid and Nancy now had the funds to travel to New York and start Sid's rock star career. To celebrate, they bought some cocaine and heroin. They joined friend and sound engineer John Shepcock, and the trio sat in bed together, speedballing all night, nodding off. When Sid and Nancy came to the next morning, they realized their friend had overdosed and died. And they were laying in bed with a corpse. Chapter 5. New York, New York. Sid and Nancy arrived in New York City on August 23rd, 1978, and immediately checked into the iconic Chelsea Hotel on 222 West 23rd Street. The Chelsea is a 12-story Victorian Gothic hotel built in 1883 when it was one of the tallest buildings in New York at the time. It's an iconic retreat for writers and artists. Everyone from Dylan Thomas to Muhammad Ali has lived there. Andy Warhol and his crew would hang out there. Hattie Smith and John Maplethorpe. Bob Dylan famously wrote Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowland there, immortalizing the event in the song Sarah when he says, Staying up for days at the Chelsea Hotel. Riding sad-eyed lady of the lowland for you. <laughs> the hotel is said by many to be haunted, and Dee Dee Ramone even wrote a semi-autobiographical horror novel about his time living there with all the ghosts. In the late 70s, it was dingy and dark, described as a fancy lowlife nightmare, and the free-spirited tenants of artists, musicians, strippers, prostitutes, Junkies and drug dealers were given free range to do what they want. They could paint their rooms, replace the furniture, do drugs. As long as you didn't bother the other tenants, anything went. Sid and Nancy made it homey. Sid hung up his gold record and a huge Never Mind the Bollocks poster, which they emptied their syringes onto, splattering it with blood. Nancy arranged her collection of newspaper clippings and invited old friends over, proudly showing off her Sex Pistol boyfriend. New York punk scene photographer Eileen Polk says, Nancy returned 20 pounds thinner and a platinum blonde with Sid Vicious on her arm and a fake British accent. I thought this was hilarious because it gave her license to be nasty to everyone who had made fun of her before. She wouldn't let anybody who had been mean to her get near Sid. She was like the kid who gets bullied and beaten up in the schoolyard and eventually becomes vengeful. At first, she tried to buy friends with money and drugs, but that didn't make her any more popular, so she just turned mean. 
Then she used her meanness to make money as a dominatrix, which was much more lucrative than just actually having sex for money. Finally, she had her moment of glory with a sex pistol boyfriend and showed them all that living well is the best revenge. But she was not well. Her appearance was armor, a disguise to hide a deep insecurity. The insidious thing about heroin addiction is that at first it makes you look great for about six months, and then it destroys you. Neither Sid nor Nancy had the slightest clue how to be in a relationship, so they fell in a destructive codependency. I think they really thought that destroying themselves was what was expected of them. Nancy set to work as a manager, booked gigs for Sid at the famous Maxis, Kansas City, and The Hive in Philadelphia, and they set about getting a backing band together. Cheetah Chrome and Jimmy Zero were recruited for guitar and bass, as well as the former love of Nancy's life, New York Dolls drummer Jerry Nolan. This could have been an amazing band. The Dead Boys are iconic New York punk with a great sound that would have been perfect for Sid to sing over. But Nancy's ego got the best of her. And Nancy, after inviting them to a restaurant for a meeting, fired both Cheetah and Zero before nodding out and literally face-planting into her salad. Hey, horror movie lovers. We want to let you know about an upcoming film called I'll Be Glad When You're Dead, an homage to 80 slashers movies. They got an Indiegogo campaign giving away all kinds of fun swag. So give them some support and love. There's a link in the show notes. That's I'll Be Glad When You're Dead, the Indiegogo campaign. Then Nancy brought Sid down to Pennsylvania to meet her parents. This is one of the only scenes in the movie Sid and Nancy that is fairly accurate and also absolutely fucking hilarious. I I can't help but love the movie Sid and Nancy. I've seen it countless times ever since I was a little kid, but it's really just more Alex Cox's fantasy of what transpired than much actual truth. While Sid was taken with Nancy's parents, particularly her mother, Deborah, calling her mum and complimenting her on everything from her lovely house to her cooking, Deborah was not impressed with either him or the Sex Pistols. In her book, she says the band were all talentless and the music of the Sex Pistols wasn't music at all, but just noise. Which is rubbish. They were a fantastic band. They changed modern music forever and were incredibly influential. But Deborah is, like we said, you know, pretty much a bitch. In Nancy's eyes, she was redeemed, now a successful rock and roll manager with a famous musician boyfriend. And she proudly strutted and showed off, much to the chagrin of her family, who were shocked and not amused by their antics. And honestly, the image of six foot two, rail pole skinny Sid Vicious with his spiky hair, shirtless beneath his black leather jacket, in motorcycle boots with a chain around his neck. I mean, it must have been quite the sight for suburban 1977 Pennsylvania. But all went fairly well, all things considered. And soon Sid and Nancy were back in New York City, preparing for Sid's big solo debut. They ended up with Steve Dwyer on guitar, simply because he was English, and New York Dolls Arthur Kane on bass and old Jerry Nolan on drums. And in September 1978, 
played three shows at Max's Kansas City. The shows were completely sold out, with hundreds milling around outside trying to get in. And the band itself, all seasoned musicians, performed great. But unfortunately, Sid was high on heroin, completely out of it, stumbling around and forgetting the words, having to read the lyrics to my way off a piece of paper. Nancy sitting on the side of the stage, encouraging him, yelling, It's okay, Sid, go on to the next song. The songs didn't really end so much as just fall apart. But people were amused by it all. Some hoping he'd overdose and die right there on stage so they could have the claim to fame that they saw the mighty Sid Vicious bite the bullet. Back at the Chelsea Hotel, at some point, Sid nodded out smoking a cigarette and set the bed on fire, completely out of it and oblivious to the smoke broiling about around him, and they moved to room 100. Virgin Records came through and paid Sid the royalties to the My Way recording, which had sold really well amounting to over $20,000, which the two kept in cash for some reason, right in their room. And then came the forlorn and tragic October Wednesday that would forever haunt both the Chelsea Hotel and Punk Rock. Chapter 6. The Murder On Wednesday, October 11th, 1978, Sid Vicious woke up out of a barbiturate daze early in the morning, his mind and body trained to go get his methadone from the clinic at this time. At first he thought he'd urinated in the bed, as it was damp. Then he realized it was blood. He followed a trail of blood to the bathroom, where he discovered Nancy in a black lacy bra and panties, lying between the sink and toilet with a knife wound to her abdomen. What exactly happened is to this day still a mystery, deeply compounded by the fact that Sid had no memory whatsoever of what had happened, having eaten approximately 30 two-in-alls the night before. But let's go over the facts, including the crime scene, the timeline, and see if we can come to any conclusion at all. In early October of 1978, there was very little heroin on the streets of New York. It was what they call a dry spell. Junkies were desperate, Sid, unable to score any dope, instead ate a handful of the powerful sedative Tuanol, approximately 30 of them, enough to drop an elephant and kill a normal person. Toxicology results from jail would confirm this after a blood test. So Sid and Nancy returned to room 100 of the Chelsea Hotel from a night on the town at approximately midnight. Sid staggers to the bed and immediately passes out going completely comatose. Numerous people are in and out of the room, including their friend and neighbor down the hall, Leon Neon. They all confirm Sid was passed out cold and unable to wake up. At 1.30, they call drug dealer and sometimes bodyguard Rocket's Red Glare for Dilaudid. Nancy tells him she has $1,400 to spend on drugs that night. At 2 a.m., Nancy calls Neon Leon on the phone. He's right down the hall, and Nancy asks him if he has any weed, saying Sid is completely out of it and useless, that she can't wake him up. There's a voice Neon doesn't recognize in the background. At approximately 3.15 a.m., Rocket's red glare comes to the room with another man who would confirm Sid was passed out on the bed. 
Rocket's red glare sells Nancy 40 dilated capsules, known as D4s, for $40 each, and a handful of syringes. Nancy reached into her bag and pulled out a wad of hundreds, peeling off 16 of them to pay for the drugs. This is all confirmed by the guy who was with Rocket's red glare. Around dawn, the next-door neighbor, Vera Mendelssohn, hears a woman moaning in pain. The walls are paper-thin, and her window is open. All that she hears is moaning. Sid awakens to go to the methadone clinic, completely out of it. He finds Nancy in the bathroom, but says she's alive, and he doesn't think the cut is that bad. So he heads to the clinic to get their desperately needed methadone. Remember, he's junk sick as hell and out of it. Not that that's an excuse for leaving your girlfriend bleeding on the bathroom floor. Sid also notices that all of their money is missing. Sid returns to the room from the methadone clinic and starts trying to clean Nancy's wound, at which point he discovers just how bad the cut is and how much blood she has lost. Now in a panic, he calls the front desk and asks them to call an ambulance. At this point, there is another call to the front desk from outside the hotel saying there's trouble in room 100. Who made this call is to this day still unknown. Police arrive and find Nancy dead in the bathroom and Sid completely unresponsive. The police are forced to slap and punch Sid to wake him up enough to read him his rights and question him. Police photos show Sid with a bruised and swollen eye after their interrogation in the hotel room. At first, Sid is completely adamant that he did not stab her. When asked how she got stabbed, he theorizes she may have fallen on the knife. Then he said they'd been in an argument. Then he says it must have been some kind of accident. But just to be clear, he's completely out of it, and they keep having to rouse him into consciousness by slapping and hitting him. The police ask him why he would leave his girlfriend there, bleeding on the bathroom floor, and go get methadone. He replied, Oh, I'm a dog. A dirty, dirty dog. Police let a number of people into the room, including a curious neighbor and a photographer. Which is just like, what the fuck? It's a crime scene. Why are they letting anyone in there? Okay, but let's review the crime scene. There's a television on a stand right in front of the door. There are three beds, sheets all jumbled, a large bloody handprint on one mattress, which is never mentioned in the police report, but obvious in crime scene photos. This is not the bed Sid was passed out on. The murder weapon, a Jaguar K-11 folding hunting knife, is sitting on a suitcase next to the door. The knife is open and completely wiped clean of any fingerprints or traces of blood. You can also see the drawer where they kept their money is open and empty. Police find six fingerprints of people known to them in the room, but the names are blacked out in the police files, and to this day no one knows who they are. Nancy is lying in the bathroom with a single stab wound right below her navel. The wound itself was not fatal. Coroners estimate she lived for approximately three hours after being stabbed which would confirm his report that she was still alive when he got up to get their methadone. Now let's go over the theories. Most believe Sid stabbed Nancy, either in a fit of irritation during an argument or as part of some suicide pact. 
Nancy's mother, Deborah, believes Nancy begged him to stab her in one of her suicidal temper tantrums, which was basically how the movie Sid and Nancy framed it. Of course, with the amount of tuanol in Sid's system, confirmed by medical reports, he would probably not remember either way. But if they had been arguing, the next-door neighbor, Vera Mendelssohn, would definitely have heard it. She'd heard them arguing often, but says that night there was no shouting, just the sound of a woman moaning in pain. Many believe Nancy could have stabbed herself. I don't know. I, don't, I really don't see this. While Nancy was known for using a knife on herself, she always slit her wrist, sometimes very seriously, like when she was a teenager and nearly died, and sometimes just as a cry for attention, like the time Glenn Matlock says he saw her eating an ice cream cone with cut wrist bleeding down her arm, saying Sid didn't love her anymore. So I just don't see her stabbing herself in this manner. Also, at some point, someone called the front desk from outside the hotel and reported there was trouble in room 100. This undoubtedly proves that someone else was there at some point. Could it have been the killer alerting the hotel in the hopes of them finding Sid there passed out and pinning the murder on him? Now, in my personal opinion, the fact that the knife was wiped clean and left by the door, which I just don't see Sid doing, and all of the money was missing, and the drawer left open, which you can see in the crime scene photos, leads me to opine that someone had snuck into the room, knowing where they kept their cash, crept to it, and during that inadvertently awakened Nancy, who confronted them in a drugged-out stupor, and they reflexively grabbed the knife and stuck it in her gut, then cleaned the knife of their fingerprints, set it on the suitcase beside the door, and left. This would explain why the stab wound was where it was, just below her belly button. And then Nancy collapsed in the bed, out of her mind. She had just bought all those delauded. And at some point, she crawls to the bathroom and dies. If this is true, then who was it that did the awful deed? Obviously, the main suspect is Rocket's Red Glare. Real name, Michael Mora. This guy was quite the character. His mother had been a heroin addict and only 15 years old when he was born. And he had to have opiates mixed with his baby formula to keep him from going into withdrawals. So he was a junkie since birth. He'd also witnessed his uncle kill a man and had seen his mother stabbed. He was a huge man, tall, massively built, but with a round baby face that could be disarming and a mouthful of rotten teeth. Sid and Nancy used him as a bodyguard at times, and he also supplied them with drugs. He came to their room at 3.15 with another man, who confirmed Sid was completely comatose on the bed. Like we said, Rocket's Red Glare sold Nancy 40 dilaudid capsules, known as D4s, for $40 each, and a handful of syringes. Nancy had reached into her bag and pulled out a wad of hundreds, peeling off 16 of them to pay for the drugs so he would have been well aware of how much money was still in the room at that time. Suspicion actually fell on him right away, as he was seen in the Chelsea's bar before the murder, broke and begging people to buy him a drink. And he was then seen after the murder with a wad of blood-stained money in brand new cowboy boots and leather jeans, 
talking about starting a record label. Though he denied it to the police, Rocket's Red Glare would confess to a number of people that he had returned to Sid and Nancy's room that night to steal their money and had stabbed Nancy. At one point, he even claimed to have filmed it with a video camera and to have the snuff film for sale. So the police, Rocket's Red Glare, tried to pin the murder on another drug dealer named Steve Sincati, who had been to the room several times and was the one selling them to and all. Neither of these men would ever be investigated by police. Rocket's Red Glare would go on to become an extra in several films. In particular, Jim Jarmusch's Down by Law and Stranger Than Paradise, usually cast as a strange-looking villain. He died in 2001 from a combination of liver failure and hepatitis. So does any of this prove anything, one way or another? Well, sadly, no. It's a mystery that will remain unsolved forever. And I guess in the end, we'll never really know who killed Nancy. Chapter 7. Love Kills While the press and police were quick to label Sid a murderer, everyone who knew him didn't believe it. Not only did he deeply love Nancy, they said Sid just didn't have murder in his heart, that beneath his rough exterior, he was a puppy dog. When Malcolm heard, he immediately flew to New York. As much as a profiteer and puppet master as Malcolm was, he was there for his friend when he needed him, and everyone else had abandoned him, saying, I suspected that if I didn't help him, no one else would. Nancy Spungen was buried in St. David's Jewish Cemetery on Monday, October 17th, 1978. Her mother, Deborah, asked Nancy's friends to please not come. Sid desperately wanted to go, but was still languishing in jail, going through severe heroin withdrawal. Nancy's mother was surprised at all the media attention her daughter created, saying, quote, Our daughter wasn't an actress or a singer. She'd never done anything exceptional except take heroin. Why couldn't they leave us alone? Never done anything exceptional except take heroin. Fucking hell from the mom. What a bitch. I'm telling you, I, I can't help but say it. Yeah. Ugh. The bail hearing was on October 21st, 1978. Malcolm paid the $50,000 bail with an advance from Virgin Records for the great rock and roll swindle soundtrack telling reporters Sid might be an outrageous person, but he's not a murderer. Out on bail, Sid would go from weeping and asking how anyone could think he'd done such a terrible thing to questioning if he actually had done it, asking people if maybe he did it but was so fucked up he didn't remember. One of the first things Sid did when he got out of jail was call Nancy's mother. When she was told she had a call from Sid Vicious, she didn't know whether to take it or not. She was torn. She hated him, always had, considered him talentless and useless like her daughter, and disgusting, and believing he may have killed Nancy as well. But still, she took the call. Sid said, Oh, Debbie. Debbie, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the call. I wanted you to know how very, very sorry I am that I couldn't come to the funeral. I wanted to so very much, Debbie. They wouldn't let me say goodbye to me, Nancy. I'm sorry she's dead, Debbie. So sorry. I don't know why I'm alive anymore now that Nancy's gone. Deborah told him she understood, and Sid said, 
I, I knew you would, Debbie. You're the only one who could. You know, Debbie, you're the only real friend I have left. Thank you so much for talking to me. Shortly afterwards, Deborah received a letter in the mail from Sid as well. It read in part, Dear Debbie, thank you for phoning me the other night. It was so comforting to hear your voice. You were the only person who really understands how much Nancy and I love each other. Every day without Nancy gets worse and worse. I just hope that when I die, I go to the same place as her. Otherwise, I will never find peace. I realized that she was searching for someone to love her. It was the only thing she really needed. I gave her the love that she needed so badly, and it comforts me to know that I made her very happy during the time we were together, where she had only known unhappiness before. Oh, Debbie, I love her with such passion. Every day is agony without her. I know now that it is possible to die from a broken heart. Because when you love someone as much as we love each other, they become fundamental to your existence. So I will die soon, even if I don't kill myself. Thank you so much for understanding us, Debbie. It means so much to me, and I know it meant a lot to Nancy. She really loves you, and so do I. Nancy was a very special person, too beautiful for this world. I feel so privileged to have loved her and been loved by her. Oh, Debbie, it was such a beautiful love. I can't go on without it. When we first met, we knew we were made for each other and fell in love with each other immediately. We were totally inseparable and were never apart. Nancy was just a poor baby, desperate for love. It made me so happy to give her love. And believe me, no man ever loved a woman with such burning passion as I loved Nancy. If possible, I would love to see you before I die. You are the only one who understands. Love, Sid. In an interview, he states, I'd never kill her. I loved that woman. I want to be with her now, and I'll be with her soon. Sid's mother soon flew out to be with her son, something Malcolm was wary of, saying she was a bad influence and trouble. His words would soon prove to be all too true. Sid got a room with his mother at the Seville Hotel, where, while Malcolm was interviewing lawyers like Roy Cohen and F. Lee Bailey, two of the best defense attorneys on the planet at the time, and ensuring them that Sid is clean and drug-free, Sid's mother was supposedly scoring the two of them drugs. Sid falls into a deep depression. In a drug-fueled psychosis, he slashes his wrists with a broken light bulb and attempts to jump out the window while screaming, I want to die. I want to join me, Nancy. Police arrived. He was put in a straitjacket and sent to Bellevue Mental Hospital, where he told doctors he was deeply suicidal, but was eventually released into the care of his mother, who apparently went out of her way making sure her son was self-medicating with whatever drugs he wanted. When he was in Bellevue, Sid had called Nancy's mother, Deborah, again on the phone. The conversation went like this. I can't live, Debbie. I tried to kill myself. I know. I tried, but they wouldn't let me. Now I sit around here and do nothing. 
they're afraid I'll try again. And I will. Can you come and visit me, Debbie? I can't, Sid. I so want to see you. I can't. Please. I have to hang up now. I love you, Debbie. Goodbye, Sid. Sid writes Deborah another letter, saying in part, I'm dying, slowly and in great pain. My baby is gone, and without her, I have no will to live. When you love someone that much, you cannot lose them and still be able to go on. I promised my baby I would kill myself if anything ever happened to her, and she promised me the same. She used to make me kiss her feet before we made love. No one will ever love the way we did. Oh, Debbie, she was the most beautiful person I ever knew. I would have done anything for her. On December 7th, 1978, Sid gets in a fight with Patty Smith's brother at the club Haraz. Just like everything Sid Vicious related, there's conflicting reports of what happened exactly. Many say Patty Smith's brother was drunk and acting like a jerk, egging Sid on, calling him a murderer. Others say it was Sid who instigated it. Supposedly, Sid hit him in the face with a beer bottle, which shattered and cut open his face. But later, Sid insisted he wasn't even drinking beer, that he didn't like beer, and that it was the guy's own bottle that broke after a scuffle, and he fell onto it. Either way, five days later, Sid is arrested for the incident and sent back to the notorious Rikers Island. The Clash, who knew Sid very, very well, long before he'd ever been a Sex Pistol, all believed he was innocent, and they played a benefit concert for him at the Music Machine in Camden Town on Tuesday, the 19th of December. James Merberg is eventually hired by Virgin Records, a great lawyer who is able to get Sid released from Rikers Island. Sid is released the 1st of February into the waiting arms of his mother. They all head over to the apartment of a girl Sid had been seeing named Michelle Robinson. Friends that night remember Sid being incredibly upbeat, positive. Malcolm gave him a list of potential songs to play for an album, which included I Fought the Law and YMCA. Can you imagine Sid Vicious seeing YMCA? Wow. Well, they listened to the New York Dolls records and Sid pogoed around and played air guitar. But was it an act? How much of the real Sid Vicious that had been a little boy named Simon and gone on to become John, Spiky John, Sid, Sid Vicious, then former Sex Pistols Sid Vicious, was left at this point? What was an act? What was real? Was it the nihilistic punk who didn't give a fuck? Or was it the sensitive and broken-hearted lover? Because what happened next, many people see as more suicide than accident. It was a bit of a party. Jerry only, the bass player from the Misfits, was there with his friend Jimmy Pyro. That old rascal Jerry Nolan, once the love of Nancy's life, showed up. They have a big steak and spaghetti dinner and insisting they make their own marinara. Then Sid's friend from England, fashion photographer Peter Gravel, whom everyone called Kodik, arrived. Quickly, everyone was grabbing spoons from the kitchen and heading off to separate rooms. It was obvious Peter had brought the goods, and the goods were quite good at that. China white, 80% pure heroin. Sid, who'd just been released from prison and had no tolerance, quickly overdosed on the powerful stuff. 
They smacked the life into him, pulled him up, got him breathing, at which point he blinked, looked at everyone staring at him, and said, Sorry, didn't mean to scare you. Party was a bit of a bummer after that, as it will be when the guest of honor turns blue and almost dies. <laughs> Sid sat around sipping tea as partygoers uncomfortably mingled about. Sid began to bug Peter for more dope. Peter gave him a small amount, which Sid ran off to shoot up, then gave the rest to Sid's mother, firmly instructing her not to let him have any more that night. But in the morning, if she felt he needed some, to let him have it. Sid then overdoses for the second time that night. Again, they get him up, walking him around, and revive him. When it was evident that Sid was all right, the partygoers started to head out into the night, Jerry Only and Howie Pyro heading off to Hurrah's. What happened next is murky. What is known is that Sid went looking for the dope he knew Peter had left behind with Anne. Anne claims she was sleeping, and he snuck in and took it from her surreptitiously. Others claim Anne simply gave Sid the heroin. Either way, Sid Vicious took a spoon, a syringe, and the 80% pure heroin, went into the bedroom, and overdosed for the very last time. Sid Vicious was dead at 21 years old. Going through Sid's belongings, Sid's mother comes across a note saying, We had a death pact. I have to keep my end of the bargain. Please bury me next to my baby. Bury me in my leather jacket, jeans, and motorcycle boots. Goodbye. Anne called Nancy's mother and asked if she could bury him next to Nancy. Deborah said no and hung up on her. It was a long shot, honestly, getting Sid Vicious buried in a Jewish cemetery, but at least she tried, I guess. On February 7th, the body of John Simon Beverly, a.k.a. Sid Vicious, was cremated, and it was decided that to fulfill his wishes, they would spread the ashes over Nancy's grave. Sid's mother Anne, accompanied by Jerry Only, Howie Pyro, Michelle Robinson, and Eileen Polk, drove down to Philadelphia and found the cemetery. They expected a quiet, open place in the country, but instead it was a huge, fenced and gated place. They went through the gates and had to have security escort them to the grave, where they obviously could not spread the ashes. They went to a nearby shopping mall, defeated. They decided to open the urn to see what the ashes looked like. Howie Pyro had the great idea to snort some of them to bring him closer to Sid, which he did. The rest declined. Then, overcome with grief, Anne demanded they drive her back to the cemetery. They drove around back. It was snowing now, the sun down. Anne took her son's ashes, crept to the fence, and hauled herself over to the other side. Ducking through the shadows, she made her way to Nancy's grave, ripped apart the bag, and let the ashes of Sid Vicious fall there on the snow-speckled grave of his Nancy. At least they're together now, Anne said, and no one can ever part them. Room 100 of the Chelsea Hotel became too infamous to bear. Hordes would show up to have seances in front of the door, take pictures, bothering guests, being nuisances. So it was turned into an emergency stairwell. And now... 
There is no room. 100. While at first callous and cold, as was his nature, eventually Johnny Rotten became more remorseful and heartfelt about the death of his friend, lamenting the fact that he couldn't save him, saying, I could take all of England on, but I couldn't take on one heroin addict. Malcolm said, He was a guy who never saw a red light. Everything was always green, however dangerous. He was chaos incarnate, and it made my blood flow. There was no one more fun than Sid. And that is the tale of our two star-crossed lovers, the Romeo and Juliet of punk rock. And we leave you with a poem Sid wrote to his Nancy after her death. Nancy, you were my little baby girl, and I shared all your fears. Such joy to hold you in my arms and kiss away your tears. But now you're gone. There's only pain and nothing I can do. And I don't want to live this life if I can't live for you. To my beautiful baby girl, our love will never die. Oh boy, I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? It's crazy. Uh, I did not, I never knew that they had snuck into the cemetery and actually put her ash, his ashes with her grave. With Jerry only, too. It's like, a, I, I'm a huge Misfits fan, so that's like, I think he was just like a little kid, like a teenager when they were doing that. Crazy. I don't know, yeah. it's a love story for the ages in the end. I mean, those letters that he wrote her mom, I mean, I was getting teary-eyed reading them, I swear to God. He, you know, they were heartfelt. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, playing devil's advocate, if he did kill her, that's really fucked up. <laughs> that, like, they're now bound in death. But, yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like that's what happened, by all intents and purposes. Even if he did, I don't know. He doesn't remember. Yeah. But... He was obviously tore up about it. God. Well, what do we got coming down the pipeline? Oh, we're getting spooky. We're going to get into the ghosts of New England and Rhode Island in celebration of Krista's upcoming novel. December 1st, it comes out. The Daughters of Block Island. We're very excited. Yeah, it's going to be fun to go to spooky Rhode Island. I feel like December is a very good time for a little gothic New England uh, spook fest for you. December is a, a traditional time to tell ghost stories. I know it. I just introduced, well, I had shown the Muppet Christmas Carol to my daughter last year, but she was a little young and she's three and a half now and now she's like fully into it. She uh, not only made me tell her the story of a Christmas Carol, but she wants backstories on the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and yet to come. So I'm, I'm working on a little fan fiction for her. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> backstories on the ghosts. Apparently Dickens did uh, did not provide us with that. <laughs> well, Marley's got his backstory, but yeah, yeah, the actual, the actual ghosts, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, well, that, but yeah, I fun. love Christmas for ghost stories. I think we should all still on Christmas Eve gather around the fire and tell spooky stories. Oh yeah, it's the darkest time of year. And- you're all stuck inside and the house is creaking as it gets cold and warm. Mm-hmm. Spooky, spooky time. Well, we look forward to our listeners joining us for at least a few spooky stories. And thanks so much for listening, fellow freaks and dear, dear listeners. We will be back next week and you know we want to hear from you. Do you have a case you think we should cover? Do we get something wrong? You just want to say hi? 
drop us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.